So to be led by the Spirit, Paul says here in context, to be led by the Spirit here is to be led to slay your sin so that you might live. And this is the evidence that you and I are sons of God. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 17. And then later after the sermon, we're going to sing and take communion together today. Uh, And so it's just a wonderful day to be together in God's house. uh, Romans 8, 12 says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. Now, there have been only a few times in my life where I have used the word mortified to describe a scenario or a moment or a situation that I had to go through. One time was in high school. Uh, any marching band or band geeks here? Yes, we, we, there's a few handful of us. So in high school marching band, I played the French horn which is embarrassing enough, but I was standing in a line and we're about to go onto the field and I just had some some heat stroke uh, and so I threw up. I actually threw up in front of uh, this entire stadium all over the trumpet section and there's just this big, you know, kind of parting of the Red Sea, if you would, all these like trumpet players and the stands are laughing. It was just a moment where you're kind of just standing there in your uniform. Mortified would be a good way to describe how I felt. Maybe you have one of those moments where you look back and you're like, that was incredibly embarrassing. Well, this morning, when we think about the idea of being mortified or mortification, as we look at Romans 8, 12 through 17, I want us to think less of an embarrassing moment, less about being embarrassed, and more about where that root word of mort is, the idea of death and putting something to death. And in our text today, we learn that in the life of every Christ follower, there's a sin nature that wants to take our very lives. And if we don't mortify it, if we don't put it to spiritual death, it not only can, but will destroy us. And so we're going to see from these verses three aspects that we don't always consider when we think about our salvation. Now, normally when we think about what it means to be saved, we we like to pull out some good theological words, some good doctrinal terms, which is important to know and learn. But we use words like, I'm elected. In other words, I've been chosen from the foundation of the world. Or we use words like justified. I've been declared righteous forensically, legally before a holy and just God. Or or we use terms like regeneration. The spirit of God made me alive. And those those are great terms and we need to know those terms. But today we're going to see a few aspects of our salvation that are positional 
but they impact us experientially. So there's a positional aspect and an experiential aspect. And sometimes we shrink back from using the word experiential. We, we, we feel it's a, li a little bit subjective, but we're going to see here how these three things impact us uh, in an experiential way. So on the screen, you'll note, if you're taking notes, these three uh, kind of aspects of our salvation that we don't always talk about, yet Paul emphasizes in Romans 8. So we're going to see in verses 12 and 13 how the Spirit gives spiritual life. We're going to see the wonderful uh, doctrine of adoption in verses 14 through 17a. And then the second half of 17, we're going to see another aspect of our salvation, which is future glory. Sometimes we think about uh, I'm saved today or I'll go to heaven one day, but we don't think about the, the glorifying aspect of our salvation. So uh, that's where we're going today. If you are uh, new to us, we teach through the scriptures verse by verse, and we're in just such a great book of the Bible, the book of Romans. It's such a great chapter, and in the middle of such a great chapter are these verses. So look with me at verses 12 and 13, and we're going to emphasize spiritual life here in this first, uh, this first idea. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So Paul begins by saying, so then, I, I like how some translations say, wherefore, therefore. I just like that. Wherefore, therefore. Or so then. In other words, what he's doing here is he's connecting us back to what he just explained in verses 1 through 11. Actually, he's explaining what he said back in chapter 7, where he asked the question, who will rescue me from this body of death? Have you ever asked that question? Would someone get me out of the, the cycle of sinning and falling into my flesh and trying to do good and falling back into it? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the remedy for a captive life in bondage to sin is only found in Jesus Christ and the sanctifying work of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And so Paul is saying, so then, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus... Because there's a higher law at work in us, the, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that Christians live under, which causes the righteous requirement of the law to be fulfilled in us. Because of that, so then, the mind submitted to the flesh, which is unable to please God uh, and, and actually separates us spiritually from God himself, which is by definition death, because we are no longer under uh, the flesh or in the flesh, uh, we, in light of those truths, uh, move into what Paul's about to say. And so what he does here when he says, so then, is that he moves. Remember last week we said this is a lot of indicative. This is a lot of just uh, reality of what we have. There's not a lot of like tie up your boots and go out and do this. There's not a lot of imperative. It's a lot of, okay, here's what we have, but, but we don't really need to do much. Well, this time, this week, this section, we transition from being reminded of what we have in Christ to what now we must do in light of what we have. So we move from perceived righteousness or imputed righteousness to practical righteousness. And right out of the gate, Paul says, brothers and sisters, so then, we are debtors. But we're not debtors to the flesh. In other words, we don't owe the flesh anything. The ESV says debtors, and that really is the most accurate word to uh, follow Paul's train of thought. What is a debtor? A debtor is one who is under an obligation. If you're in debt today, whether it's credit card debt, mortgage debt, student loan debt, maybe you owe your mom a few dollars if you're a high schooler, 
You know what it means to be a debtor. You're under the obligation. You owe someone something. And so we know this. If we share our Netflix password with someone who doesn't live in our household, maybe their name's Ryan. And there's no secret. I'm not like trying to say something to a Ryan here today, by the way. I'm not, I'm, there's no like secret veiled reminder here in the, in the sermon. But let's just say there happened to be a guy named Ryan in the church and you loan them your Netflix password. And you said, hey, Ryan, would you please Venmo me $5 a month because we're paying the bulk of that uh, to offset the cost. And we know all of you secretly share your Netflix password with others because we already learned in Romans we're all sinners. So every time Ryan logs into Netflix, he's reminded, maybe, hopefully, that, oh, I'm a debtor. I, I owe that $5 to my pastor. Uh, and now, if, if you texted him, but you got the wrong Ryan in your, in your phone, you got the wrong Ryan, and you text the wrong Ryan, hey, Ryan, don't forget you owe me that, f- that $5. He would simply text you back and say, hey, you got the wrong Ryan. Uh, I don't owe you anything. And so what we have to realize when we come to this is that Paul is saying, hey, you're not of Adam anymore. Those who are under Adam owe an obligation to the flesh. But those who are in Christ, the true and better Adam, nothing is owed anymore. We, don't, uh, we have nothing as far as owing or being under obligation to the flesh. In other words, it has no claim on us. Uh, If anything, Paul should have finished his train of thought, and some theologians are scratching their head why he didn't. It's almost like he doesn't need to. It's implied, it's understood. If he were to finish the sentence logically, he would have said in verse 12, we're debtors not to the flesh, but to the spirit. But it's implied, it's understood. Those who are in Christ, we owe the flesh nothing. We, in fact, if anything, are obligated to the dictates, the desires, and the leading of the Spirit. And so the indwelling Holy Spirit gives us life. And so we can't possibly live in the flesh because that way leads to death. John Stott put it this way, how can we possess life and court death simultaneously? Such an inconsistency between who we are and how we behave is unthinkable, even ludicrous. No, we are in debt to the indwelling spirit of life to live out our God-given life and to put to death everything which threatens it or is incompatible with it. And that's as practical as it gets in our Christian experience. Now notice verse 13, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, I want you to look at that word if for a minute. We, we've been seeing Paul use the word if in a s- sort of way that it should be translated since. Uh, it's an understood, it's, it's a reality. But here he actually is using a, theori- a theoretical if. And this is a big theoretical. It's not a, it's not a reality. It, he's just saying, if you were to live according to the flesh, it's death. Uh, but if you're... Uh, by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's like telling your children, if you run out into traffic, young one, you can expect to be hit by a car. I mean, that's a theoretical, and sometimes we scare our children, but that's a theoretical intended to warn your children. You're not expecting them to run out in traffic. You're not saying, you're going to get hit by a car. You're just saying, if you are to do this, this could happen. This would be the result. It's a truthful reality. And so Paul warns us as believers, if you were to live submitted to the flesh, death. If you were to walk in the spirit and put the flesh to death, life. We call this concept 
mortification, the mortification of sin. Again, nothing to do with being embarrassed in front of a crowd of people, but much to do with putting our flesh in its proper place. John Owen, the Puritan writer had, uh, and pastor, had, has much to say on mortification. He's probably the category killer, pun intended, on mortification. Now, here's what he said. He said a few things about mortification. Here's a lot. He said, mortification, it abates sin's force, but doth not change its nature. Grace changeth the nature of man, but nothing can change the nature of sin. Destroyed it may be, it shall be, but cured it cannot be. If it be not overcome and destroyed, it will overcome and destroy the soul. And herein lies no small part of its power. It is never quiet, whether it is conquering or conquered, live to, and he says to us, live to see thy lust dead at thy feet. And then he just says, mortify. What would be the word to walk away with today? Mortify. Make it your daily work. Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So positionally, positionally, it's done. Christ has put the flesh to death. In fact, in Galatians 5.24, we're told that we have done this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified, past tense, the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, who belongs to Jesus? We know that Christians, those who have repented of their sins, trusted Christ for their, their salvation. We, according to Paul, have put our flesh to death. It's been crucified. Positionally, it's been done, but experientially, we must do it. Colossians 3.5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? And what is that, Paul? Well, he goes a little bit into detail. It's sexual immorality, it's impurity, it's passion, it's evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, you leave that verse up for a minute. Up in verse 3 of Colossians 3, Paul had said, you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Positionally, you already died. Your life is already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. But experientially, we're told to do in faith what God has already done in fact. So we continue to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Our sin may have already been uh, rendered powerless, but now we walk in continued victory and mortify it, crucify it, slay it. Uh, John MacArthur said it this way, about Paul. He said, Paul is describing a way of life. That's the Christian way of life, where we seek to throttle sin and crush it from our lives, sapping it of its strength, rooting it out, and depriving it of its influence. And this is what it means to mortify sin. Now, you and I, we cannot gain life from sin any more than we can from drinking poison. And, and so we must put it to death, or it will put us to death. I read this week about an Eastern European man. There's a lot of people that raise lions, and I'm not going to go into detail about Netflix shows that highlight that, but there are people who raise lions and tigers and bears, and this Eastern European man basically raised a lion from birth, and at the age of, I think, two to nine, somewhere in that range, he went to take it for its daily walk around the pen, and it, it mauled him and killed him. And so if you were to ask him, uh, he would say, oh, it's fine. He's just a, he's a tame lion. I've raised him from birth. It's okay. God gets it. God understands, right? And, and yet uh, it will put us to death. And so how? How are we told to slay our sin? Note the very important clause in verse 13. He says in verse 13, by the Spirit. Don't miss that. 
by the Spirit. Spiritual life is not something you and I conjure up, that we maintain, that we preserve. We are both made alive by and sustained by the Holy Spirit. And so it's by the Spirit that we mortify the sin in our lives. It's not by trying to do better. Of course, we do join the Spirit in His work, but it's by the Spirit. It's walking in the Spirit. Now, Paul proves that by making his second point about our adoption. So look with me at verse 14. He's building a case here because he says in verse 14, for, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Now, some people have, have really been confused by verse 14. In fact, some people are reading into verse 14, Holy Spirit direction. So what they do is they take verse 14 out of context. They take it out and they say, okay, what this is saying is, is that the Holy Spirit is leading me to buy a candle at Bath and Body Works. And so Holy Spirit, lead me, lead me to the best sales. Lead me to that parking spot in the mall. Lord, I, I just lead me, Holy Spirit. Uh, and if you're smiling uh, slyly, you've probably maybe prayed that prayer, guilty, right? Holy Spirit, lead me to just some frivolous thing. But that's not what Paul means here by those who are led by the Spirit being sons of God. No, there's a big four at the beginning of verse 14. So what does that mean? It means it's linked back to what he just said. So what Paul's saying is those who are led to slay their sin and experience spiritual life are God's sons. Those who are led by the Spirit to put their sin to death, it's, it's a, a birthmark, if you would, of those who are God's sons and daughters. Now, I will just say on that note, uh, if you're asking, you're curious, all Christians are led by the Spirit to some degree. I just want to address that because some people are confused. Uh, when people say, I am led by the Holy Spirit, I like what Costi Hinn quantifies this. In his book, uh, Defining Deception in the Appendix, he says this, we say led by the Spirit, he says, yes, the intuitive guiding, prompting, or impression from the Holy Spirit toward an act of righteousness or wisdom, not to buy a candle or a parking spot. It's an act of righteousness or wisdom. And he says this position would be considered the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16, and is completely normative for Christians. And so I don't shy away from saying, yeah, the, the, the Spirit has led in a certain way. We have the mind of Christ. The Spirit, John 16, 13, leads us to all truth. Uh, we're directed by the Spirit in righteousness and wisdom. Okay? That is true, but I want to be careful. I want to be cautious when we say the phrase, I feel led. I just want to be a little bit careful here. Because all sorts of stupidity and evil has been inserted at the end of that sentence throughout church history. And then the Holy Spirit gets blamed. Well, the Spirit was telling me to do something. No, your intuition, your circumstance, or your befuddled mind told you, not the Spirit. Uh, my parents, I've shared this story before, back in 83, I think, <laughs> my, uh, my parents had a knock at the door one night, and someone came and said, they were part of a very Pentecostal church, someone came and said, God told me you're supposed to give me your car. And so what do you do? Like trump card, God told me. And so uh, my dad said, well, God didn't tell me that. Good night, and <laughs> slammed the door. <laughs> So to be led by the Spirit, Paul says here in context, to be led by the Spirit here is to be led to slay your sin so that you might live. And this is the evidence that you and I are sons of God. But notice what Paul says. He says, he goes on, and he says that we, verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. 
No, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we, he goes from the you to the we, we cry, Abba, Father. We didn't receive a spirit of slavery. That's an apt descriptor of the flesh. You want to know what the flesh is like? If you're here and you're not regenerate, you're not made alive, you're not a Christian, this is maybe your first Sunday, you're invited, you're listening to this, and you're not walking with Christ, then, then that's an apt descriptor of who you are and what your life looks like. Slavery. You are... Uh, you've received a spirit of slavery. But in Christ, he says, no, we don't walk that way anymore. We're not held in fear. No, we instead have received a new spirit, the spirit of adoption of sons. Uh, John Piper says, God's creating a family, not a slavery force. See, you and I are a covenantal family. And we have received the spirit of adoption. And we are passionate about adoption here at Shoreline. We have many families who have adopted and can maybe speak to the complexities of an adopted family. And yet, when we look at the Greek here, the Greek word uh, has two different words. The first half of the word means an adult son, and the second half of the word means to install something in place. So if you were to take the word together, ad to be adopted means to be placed in a proper place as a son, to be put in. That's a great word. Adoption's a great concept. Where else do you take someone and put them in a place as a son? That's what you and I have. And this word, adoption, is found five times in our New Testaments. Every time it's mentioned, it's Paul. This is a Pauline idea. Uh, it's found in Galatians 4. Look on the screen where Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive, here it is, adoption as sons. And because your sons, God has sent the Spirit of his son into our hearts crying. Here it is again, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's also found in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, where Paul says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in the beloved. This idea of adoption is what uh, theologians call the sweetest doctrine. It really is the sweetest doctrine. Uh, and I, I just want to read something to you from uh, the way the Greek world looked at adoption, the, the time that uh, Paul, again, is writing uh, to the Romans. Uh, through the Greco-Roman world, listen to this, the wealthy and influential practiced adoption. Uh, you can take that down, um, CJ. Uh, here's what this person said. Sometimes just a simple, simple declaration in the marketplace turned a slave into a son. It was an ancient remedy used when a marriage failed to produce a male heir. No change in name came, but the adopted son immediately became heir to the entire wealth and position of his adoptive family. Conversely, the adopted son also assumed responsibility for the parents in their time of need. Adoption in the Greco-Roman world was a beautiful picture. No concept is more meaningful to a believer. For de uh, adoption deposits everything God owns to the accounts of his sons and daughters. See, you and I are, have now been adopted into the family of God. We are now sons and daughters of God. So the reality of sonship, of crying out, Abba, Father, a, a term of endearment uh, that a child would use crying out to his dad. This means, this reality means you and I are no longer slaves. We're sons. And included with that is this idea of being heirs. So this sonship is our right through adoption. Positionally, you and I are adopted sons. And there's lots of scripture, as we just said, to support the sweet doctrine. 
Positionally, it's true. Experientially, the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we're adopted sons. Look at verse 16. So not only is this true positionally, but it's something we experience. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, I want you to circle, if you have your Bibles in front of you, and a pen, circle the phrase, the Spirit himself. Please circle that phrase. Uh, The King James Version actually gets this verse incorrect. Uh, It translated as the Spirit itself. And that's a tragic translation because the Holy Spirit is absolutely not an impersonal wind or power that we can wield like Luke Skywalker using the force to lift the X-wing out of the swamp. That's not the idea of the Holy Spirit itself. No, this is correct in the ESV. The, the Spirit himself bears witness. There's a relational, personal aspect. And so we must emphasize the person of the Holy Spirit because Scripture emphatically reveals to us the person of the Holy Spirit. And that includes using the correct personal pronouns to describe him and his work. The Spirit himself bears witness. Now, that phrase bears witness or testify, it literally means to come to a court of law and to testify in support of someone else. In other words, to provide credible supporting evidence to someone's case by giving a testimony. So it's like an alibi. It's a testament, a testimony. It's, it's to show to be true or to give evidence in support of. And so what Paul is saying is that all true believers carry a dual witness. We carry the internal witness that we're his children, and we also have an external witness who confirms within us that we are his children. This is what John said. First John 3, he said, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That's the NIV translation. Great way of capturing the lavishing of God's love upon his children. That's what we are. And Spurgeon remarked that we bear this internal witness. We testify, yeah, I'm a son. And now I know we talked about assurance. Sometimes we have wrestled with the assurance of our salvation. But at the end of the day, we go, no, I'm a son. I'm a daughter. But see, then the Spirit steps forward, Spurgeon says, as a great, a greater and higher witness to also testify to that truth. Now, historians record that when a Roman adoption ceremony took place, it would take place with seven witnesses. And when years later, the adopted father or adopting father uh, died, Many years later, if there happened to be any dispute about the right of the adopted son to be an inheritor of any part of the estate, they would call on one or more of the original seven witnesses to step forward and to swear or to testify or to bear witness that the son's adoption was genuine. And so Paul is saying the spirit himself steps in to say, yep, he's been adopted. Uh, let Let me confirm to you in the internal witness also that we are his sons. One person beautifully said, how does this happen? How does he testify? They said, well, in his comforting us, in his stirring us to prayer, in his reproof of our sins, in his drawing us to works of love, to bear testimony before the world. These are ways that the Spirit bears witness. It isn't necessarily goosebumps, right? But it's, it's that external and that internal witness that the Spirit uh, says, testifies. Yes, you are a son. You've been adopted. Now, our adoption as sons also includes an inheritance. Notice the first 
part of verse 17. He says, if you're children, then you're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, the idea here of being an heir is someone who obtains a lot or a portion. So not only are those who receive an inheritance, uh, not only are we those who receive an inheritance from the Father. That would be great enough. But note here that he says we're also co-heirs. We're fellow heirs with Christ. When the rich young ruler, you guys remember that story? When he came to Jesus, he kind of had everything the world wanted. He was young. The world wants youth. He was rich. The world wants to be rich. And he was a ruler. He had power. Everything the world is longing for was, was caught up in this young man. And he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You guys see the folly in that question? Let me, let me ask you then. What do I need to do to get an inheritance? See how dumb of a question that is? That, that's a foolish question. What do you do? What do I do to inherit a billionaire's wealth? What do we have to do? Like, what do I have to do to get Bill Gates's wealth? What do I have to do? There's nothing I can do. The only way to do it is to be an heir. I have to be adopted into the family to be an inheritor. And, and so uh, essentially what Paul's getting at is that you and I are co-heirs. We're fellow heirs with Christ. We're sons, and therefore... There's nothing we can do necessarily. It's just the reality of who we are. Uh, there's a story told of Edward Lear, who's known for his little children's poems and some drawings. And uh, apparently, historically, he was asked by Queen Victoria to give her drawing lessons. And after one of the lessons, uh, she began to show him, as the queen, she began to show him the family heirlooms around uh, her living quarters in the palace. And he was just taken by the beauty of all of the uh, items that she had. And without thinking, he said, where did you get all these beautiful things? And she just said, well, I inherited them, Mr. Lear. Uh, I didn't go out and get them. They just simply were a part of the family. And so when we look at this text, we have to just for a minute be reminded that Christ is the true heir. He's the true son. We are joined with him in adoption. And so we, in that adoption, become joint heirs of all the riches that Christ has received. Spurgeon reminds us, with him in the suffering, with him in the glory. With him in the reproach of men, with him in the honor. And so that brings us to our final idea here, the second half of verse 17. Again, another aspect of our salvation we don't always consider, meditate on, and that's our future glory. Notice verse 17, he says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I want to emphasize three points here from just this short text. If you're taking note, please jot these down. Don't miss these today. This is critical. This will help us, I think, even this week. Number one, I want you to be reminded from this verse that we will suffer. He says, provided we suffer with him. Right? We will suffer. Um, that is not a popular teaching you're going to hear today in the modern church or in Christian pop music. Uh, Philippians 1.29 says, It's been granted for you. Uh, for the sake of Christ, granted to you, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Anybody have that verse tattooed on your arm? Anybody have that verse on your verse of the day, Thomas Kincaid with the eagle and the mountain background? I'm going to suffer for Christ. Listen, a Christian who's never suffered for their faith is of little threat uh, because they're of little benefit. We can and should expect suffering. And so... Just, we need to know that from Scripture. We will suffer. But secondly, this is maybe an even better point. Number two, we will suffer with him. 
In other words, you're not suffering alone. Paul says, provided we suffer with him. Now, suffering's difficult, but nothing is more difficult than suffering something alone. When you and I experience pain, it is so much more enduring to have someone there with us to endure the pain of maybe uh, a husband who is not walking with Christ and you're trying to seek Jesus uh, or to walk through the death of a loved one, to walk through persecution, to walk through suffering. When we have someone there to lighten that load of anguish, someone to be there with us and alongside us, and Paul reminds us as fellow inheritors with Christ, we also suffer the things that Christ suffered. So we're not alone in this. We suffer with him. But thirdly, what hope there is that we will also be glorified with him. Now, we're not glorified apart from him. We're glorified with him. Like Jesus, first the cross, then the crown. You see, as those who are in covenant union with Jesus, we can expect to both suffer with Jesus, being persecuted for righteousness' sake, to endure hardship in holiness, to be rejected, to be cast off by the world. Okay, we can expect that to suffer, but we can also expect to be glorified with him. And so we'll dig into that idea of future glory a little bit more as we read. In fact, you should have a heading above verse 18 that says future glory. And I'll just, let's just tease it a little bit. Verse 18 for next week, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is a light and momentary suffering that we have, but one day, future glory. Uh, and we'll dig more into that in the second half of chapter 8, which we'll study in the next few weeks. Now, uh, I want us to uh, prepare our hearts for communion. Today, we're going to receive the elements in just a moment when we sing. The ushers during the song will come forward and are going to distribute the elements. Before we close this sermon, though, I want to make sure we apply this text. So if you're taking note, we're not done yet. I want to give us a couple... Uh, points of application. Remember, last week was, here's what we are, who we are, here's what we do this week. So I want to give you some actionable items today. Number one, I want to challenge us today to be led by the Spirit to slay your sin. Be led by the Spirit to, to put your sin to death. Spurgeon said, there is no alternative. If you do not die to sin, you shall die for sin. If you do not slay sin, sin will slay you. Today, believer, what needs to be put to death in your life? Is it pornography? Put it to death. Is it anger? Mortify it. Is it selfishness? Is it self-glory? Put it to death. Is it greed? Mortify it. What needs to be put to death in your life before it destroys you? As a church, may we be led by the Spirit to do what? To put to death whatever may put us to death. Be led by the Spirit, church, to slay your sin. Number two, man, this is definitely an encouragement for us today. And that is number two, expect suffering. Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial you're enduring as if some alien thing, some strange thing were happening to you, but rejoice that you're suffering uh, in light of Christ. We should expect suffering. There's no inheritance of glory without an inheritance of suffering. And so don't shrink back from it. 
and say, well, maybe I'm not a child of God. No, it, it, one of the birthmarks of being a child of God is, well, yes, future glory, but present suffering. So lean into it. The cross precedes the crown. Uh, but in the midst of that suffering, take heart. Because the weight of suffering, as we'll look next week, the weight of suffering doesn't compare with the weight of glory. It's like a little featherweight boxer showing up to a heavyweight match. This little guy who can't hold his own against a heavyweight. He says it's a light and momentary trouble compared to a much weightier glory. And we'll look at that next week. You can't compare the two. So expect it. This week, expect the suffering. Now, I don't mean, and neither does the scriptures mean, suffering for being dumb. You know, I'm suffering. I'm suffering because I play my Christian music super loud at 3 a.m. And I'm being persecuted for my faith. My, my neighbor upstairs is really mad. No, that's, that's suffering not for Christ's sake, but because you're, you're just not being wise, okay? So you can expect suffering and persecution as a Christian. But thirdly, may we see our identity as an adopted heir. What are the birthmarks of the believer? According to Paul, we've been given spiritual life. We experience fearless freedom in our relationship with the Father, and we can expect to suffer for Christ's sake. But you and I are adopted heirs. What glorious truth. If you were to find out later today, hey, you remember that you were adopted as a child? Well, it turns out that uh, the Father had this untold wealth that he uh, left to you. You and I share in such greater riches, the riches of Christ. How rich was Christ? Hebrews 1-2 tells us Jesus is the heir of all things. <laughs> all things are heirs by are ours by right of inheritance. So may we today see our identity in this sweetest doctrine of adoption. May this remind us who we are and whose we are. Fanny Crosby, as we close, wrote these words in her hymn titled Adopted. She wrote this in the year 1900. She said, oh, what a blessing. How can I express it? Out of the fullness of rapture I sing, now by the Father received and adopted, I am a child and an heir of the King. Oh, what a father, how tenderly gracious. Oh, what a savior to make me his care. Though I've slighted, rejected, and grieved him, still he permits me his kingdom to share. And then in the refrain, just over and over, I am adopted, oh, wonderful love, heir to a heritage purchased above. Tell it my soul and joyfully sing, I am a child and an heir of a king. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Gracious Father, in love, the scriptures tell us you predestined us for adoption to yourself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of your will, to the praise of your glorious grace. And you've blessed us in the beloved. And because of Christ, our fellow heir, because of Jesus, we now have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of of his grace, which he lavished upon us. How great the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And so we acknowledge this morning that the cross precedes the crown, that suffering as well as glory is our inheritance. And so this morning we submit to you, and we ask, Lord, for strength in our trials. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us to slay our sin, to mortify it, to crucify it, to put it to death for your sake. And we look ahead to the future glory, which far outweighs these light and momentary troubles. And we ask, Father, that you'd be glorified in us and through us as we delight in and submit to you. 
By the Spirit's help, may we walk in spiritual renewal daily. For the gospel and glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.